The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, May 10th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca and Instagram is trying to prevent bullying, which, as the New York Times points out, requires that you define bullying. Instagram cites as a form of bullying, quote, intentional inducement of FOMO. The Times goes on to say FOMO, fear of missing out, is not a crime or even a misdemeanor, but it is a big problem on Instagram where millions of teenagers go every day to check on their peers. Now, I do have to say that if Instagram stamped out the concept of, wow, this was fun, too bad you missed it, there would be no Instagram. Kim Kardashian can only chronicle the slots in her sink so often. Intentional inducement of FOMO. Wow, that as bullying, a form of bullying. I mean, excuse me, sir. I believe you sent this postcard from Mount Rushmore in 1979, and I quote, having a great time, wish you were here. Sir, do you need to make amends? Perhaps you should apologize, a sincere, thoughtful apology centered on your victim's pain, sir. Or else, well, I'm sure a stint in bullying jail would set you straight. It could even make for a good memoir. Come to think of it, maybe I'd like to go to bullying jail. Oh no, I'm having FOMO. Now, I do have to say that as long as Instagram has gotten into the business of chronicling and describing the general category of FOMO, fear of missing out, uh, it's definitely going to have to get a little bit deeper and a little bit more specific. I mean, first you make a law against the general thing, murder, then there's murder one, murder two, manslaughter, or, you know, the difference between vagrancy and criminal trespass and loitering. They're, they're very different things, and they all can take on a different sheen depending on which filter you use. And, of course, all can be used to induce FOMO. We were loitering the other day, Steve. You missed out. But I wonder not just about FOMO in general. I wonder about specific fears, like the fear that you're missing out on a great art exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art, say. You know, MoMA FOMO. And what if that art included flightless birds dressed in caftans? That'd be emu mumu moma fomo. But what if that's not even at MoMA's main locale, New York City? What if it were held in the MoMA branch in San Bernardino, California? You know, Loma Linda. And of course, the governor of New York would try to keep it in state, giving rise to the New York Post headline. Can Cuomo hinder Loma Linda emu mumu moma fomo? Those are all the right questions. Let us answer those questions more fully in the future. But Daniel, right now, can we tease it as you cut a Cuomo Hinder, Loma Linda, Emu Mumu, Moma Fomo promo? On the show today, I spiel about the markets. And if we should want to crash, no, no, we shouldn't. But if you are a Slate Plus listener, and if you're not, why? They're very important to everything I do here at Slate. And there's some just bonus content up this weekend. If you like the mini spiels I was doing yesterday, I've got a few more for you on Slate Plus. But first, in this, the last day of our uh, possibly self-indulgent week of self-celebration for five years of The Gist, I welcome back one of my favorite guests and also the host of one of my favorite podcasts, a podcast suspiciously like this one, Larry Wilmore is in the house. One of my favorite segments is from September 26, 2014. 
It was a five-minute wordplay extravaganza. You're saying you're calling for a Zenyatta Mandata, Arata, Dada, Regatta, Daughter, Sonata, Cantata, Frittata, Fatwa? Well, in that case, I think you ought to take your Zenyatta Mandata, Arata, Dada, Regatta, Daughter, Sonata, Cantata, Frittata, Fatwa, throw it in the Rio de Plata because you are a persona non grata. Love the gist. So when people ask me, Mike, what shows do you listen to or what shows do you compare the gist to, I have a slew of shows I listen to, most of them not like mine. But there is one show that I find similar in a way, and it's Black on the Air, hosted by Larry Wilmore. In that, Larry starts every show by talking, I think off the top of his head, in a humorous way about news of the day, and then goes into an in-depth interview. Along the way, we get to know about Larry's orientation in the world, which I seem to think is similar to mine. So in this, the last day of our fifth anniversary week, I wanted to have Larry on to uh, say thank you for having me on and thank you for your show and talk about podcasting in general. Hey, Larry. Hey, Mike. Uh, nice to be here. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for doing this. I loved your book, by the way, The What Ifs. That, yeah. was, that was awesome. Thanks. Yeah. So so you started your podcast in 2017. Uh, yeah, that was two years ago. Yeah. yeah, time flies. What was different about... Well, how was your how were your mm-hmm. expectations upended by uh, the the actual experience of doing the podcast? Well, it's funny. Um, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do a podcast or not. I, I really didn't know after the nightly show went down. First of all, you're exhausted, you know, from putting producing a television show every day, you know. But uh, so Bill Simmons called and he said, "Hey, man, um, would you like to do a podcast?" And we went out to lunch. I said, "Yeah, I thought about it, but I don't know." And we really talked about it. And it was his actual belief in me to do it, yeah. which kind of sold me on it, you know. And I thought, well, this is something that I can do, and I can still manage the other things that I'm doing, and I can get out the expression. Well, part of the expression that I had in the nightly show arena. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it'd be nice to have that expression. And I love interviewing people, Mike. I I didn't really get a chance to interview people much on the nightly show. No. It was always a discussion that was fulfilled in a way that I hadn't even imagined because I realized that in the conversations themselves. I would like find my point of view or I would I would redirect it here or I would discover things about the person, you know, that I didn't know having an expectation going in and that sort of thing. Has it let's go to insecure and blackish. Is it easier, harder? I I've read interviews where you talk about how it's gone in waves, but is it easier to get a hearing, um, a, a consideration as a producer? Well, you are black, so you are going to be a producer of black content because that's who you <laughs> are. But is that something that they're now desirous of? And before you had to knock on the door three extra times? Well, I wouldn't say I'm a producer of black content, but I like to be a producer of what I call content that isn't on the air currently. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Because, like, for instance, I just produced a show with Jessica Gao, who is a Chinese-American writer. It's about her family, you know. And in my mind, this family isn't on television, you know. I've always pushed for why can't somebody like me just do any kind of content? It doesn't have to be based in that, you know. So I have a lot of different projects. I have a project based on my love of magic that I'm developing. I love that, yeah. At Disney Plus, <laughs> and that has nothing to do with the race or anything, you know. So that's in its particular place, and I'll do that. 
Like, you should be able to say I suck for anything that I do <laughs> rather than I have pushed for the ability to suck in anything, Mike, rather than just <laughs> racial content. It will be that will be the glorious. <laughs> and believe day. me, I am succeeding one yeah. show today. Where no, we could give you one and a half stars yeah. based exactly. on the content of your Correct. character, not the I noticed not a lot of color skin, sounds right? like a lot of female uh co-creators on this stuff. Yes. Um that's another thing I've always been passionate about. Um women have always had the shorter end of the stick, you know, in the writing creating field. You know, so I've always been supportive of that. And I like working with young people and new voices and that kind of stuff. I'm kind of in that mentorship position. You get to a certain age, Mike, and, and if you can accept that gracefully, I love it, actually. Then it's really a cool thing because I love collaboration, you know, and I love bringing my OG, old school knowledge into something. And then you get the, the YG uh-huh. stuff in there, too. And the mix of that is fun. It's really exciting. I wanted to ask you about uh, an interesting article I read. Wesley Morris wrote this article about him being a critic and uh, having being in favor of art for the morally right reasons as opposed to artistically right reasons. I loved it. And then when I read it back, I realized, oh, the case in point that he was pointing to is Insecure, which happens oh, yeah. to be your show. Mm-hmm. The fact that, don't you understand? This is right. the first time a woman like her is getting a show sure. like this. So uh, he felt impinged upon as a critic. More so than ever in my life, when you read reviews or know what the consensus is, it's inflected by the va- the morality of the message yeah. being or the well the here's creators. the thing Matt. here's what reviewers have always done which mm-hmm. I have not liked is they always review with their version of what they like to see yes and I'm like motherfucker you you make a movie you know <laughs> this is the movie that I wrote you know review it for its merits and it just occurs in different ways you know in the 60s after Pauline Kale you know and And um, the way that she reviewed movies, people started reviewing movies for how much they thought they should be going against society, you know, or going against established movie making. If they weren't taking chances in that, they weren't worthy. Right. That was like a Pauline Kael type of movie. The new criticism. Yes. New is an important part of that. Yes. It's very correct, you know, and that's how movies were judged, you know, from that. Now you have woke criticism, you know. I think that's what Wesley's talking about. about, Which to me is another imposition of of the critic on the on the thing they're reviewing, which to me doesn't really belong in reviews. You know, it belongs in an essay about something else. Yes. But his sounds like more of a discussion in a barbershop type of thing, too, you know, or discussing it with friends he was talking about and the dilemma of not wanting to trash it amongst friends because he wants to seem loyal to it. Right, you know, right, right. Different, he wasn't know. saying, you know, he is the Pulitzer Prize winning critic, couldn't right. say or do whatever he wanted in the New York Times. Right. He maybe wanted that dinner conversation yeah. to go a little more now, smoothly. I, I think some of that, I don't find that so much in media that much, to be honest with you. There may be a little bit of it. I found it more in politics, like with Obama. Mm-hmm. Like, black people did not like to hear criticism of Obama from black people. Yes. <laughs> like, like I think it was uh, Tavis Smiley and Cornel West were, like, almost excommunicated. They had that tour. <laughs> they were, like, almost excommunicated. Or they were, like, in the yeah. Chappelle trade. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, traded off. I don't even know what team they made it on at this point, you know. <laughs> they, they, were, but, they had to play two years in the Japanese oh, league horrible. before coming back. And, like— Michael I, Eric Dyson, too. He yes, was another one. And I always— uh, tried to have my criticism with the sense of humor and everything, but acknowledge that as a fan, you're, I'm a, like I'm allowed to criticize the Lakers, but I'm still a rabbit Lakers fan. Right. Like, I know what that difference is, you know. And the very thing that perhaps a critic like Dyson would say, something like selling out to part of your community, sure. that's the mm-hmm. feature, not the bug. The fact that yeah. people, that, that white America can identify with Barack Obama. And that's maybe one of the things that they were most critical of, of pandering to white America. Well, 
I sometimes I intuited the opposite. I felt a lot of liberal white America pandered to Obama and treated him with too much preciousness. Mm-hmm. You know, like he's some figure to not be to not be messed with. You know, we don't know how long this fragile butterfly, this Negro butterfly, is going to be along. <laughs> let's make sure. Let's treat him well with kick gloves. It's like no, he's a president. He's he's a Chicago politician for Christ's sakes. You know. Yeah. I mean, guys. You know, like he he's still a politician. We, and as comedians, we should be able to criticize power no matter who's holding that power you know so i didn't like when comedians wouldn't have criticisms that was the kind of criticism you should have for a president no matter who's in office right you know um sometimes it occurs differently when you agree with them but it should still exist i do think this about obama he was not above criticism but if you look at and this isn't great comedy but if you look at a lot of the comedy that's been aimed at the last you know, presidents during my my lifetime, uh-huh. Bush, uh, Reagan, Clinton, Trump, personal foibles played a huge role. Yes. And Obama really did take that off the table. Well, he did because this is what I'm saying. This is the liberal preciousness to have him be perfect, to have him be the perfect messenger you don't think he You don't think he really gave comedians less fodder just in terms of personal failings? And, no, they were just scared. Uh-huh. I think people were scared. So, like, for instance, Obama took way too fucking long to make a point. <laughs> yes, he did. Way too long. <laughs> Nobody made enough jokes about that, you know? <laughs> like, I, I did a joke, I remember, where I was like, uh, like if you just asked Obama what he had for breakfast, he's like, um, well, um, um, this morning, uh, <laughs> uh, there was um, some sort of uh, uh, decorative... Um, a plate. Uh, it's like, just get to the. I'm fucking hungry over here. Get to. Whereas Bush would have just said eggs. <laughs> but it would have been French toast. Some kind of yeah. sausage. You know? Like Obama, get to the fucking point. Like nobody made enough fun of his foibles, you uh-huh. know, because they were there. Sometimes SNL did, like him wearing mom jeans. Uh-huh. Like that's funny. That's that's an arrow at that at something about them that we can laugh at. But what they instead did was they made jokes about. Like his being black, which mm-hmm. isn't a joke about him. It's a joke about a bigger thing that right. they can find humor in, you know, but not about him. There weren't enough jokes about him. It's that preciousness and people were just scared. I don't want to make fun of the black guy because black people are going to come after me. Yeah. Which even if that is the case, as a comedian, you got to take that heat. Yeah. <laughs> it's like going after Beyonce. You got to be careful if you're going to do it. You do. You better bring it. It yeah. better be really funny because yeah. the Bayhive is going to come after there's you. No, there's no good way to do that. No, there's no good <laughs> no. way. Arguably, it's more dangerous to go after I Beyonce think, yeah. <laughs> than Obama. Yeah. yeah. There's less of a Because Obama's natural... only going to be office at the mm-hmm. most eight years. Term limited. Right. Exactly. There's no constitutional Correct. prescription against right. Beyonce. Yeah, you could blame it on the economy. You could blame it on all kinds of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, I like mm-hmm. Key and Peele's anger translator because that was getting at a truth. That's about being well, black. Well, that's why I asked you about right. it. But that, I but think, does get to a truth. It gets to a truth about blackness, not about Obama. About the kind of blackness he had to represent. Like he but it's a general point. It's yeah. a general point. And it's a funny point. I'm not saying it's not funny. I'm not saying it's not a good observation, but it's not about him. Now, the one that they did that was closer about him, but was still a general point, was how he changes up his handshakes. Because yeah. Obama did do that. He code switched yes. his handshakes. Now, code switching <laughs> is something that Obama does do. Yes. I mean, politicians do do that, but he does it in a funny way because of the handshake. That's more about him. You know, but once again, it's a... F- it's comedy coming out of flattery of the person and not critique of the person, too. Do you think that comedy, sarcasm, parody, anything has been at all a check 
uh, on the Trump administration or at the very least, and I loved your conversation with Gladwell about, mm. about this, but I think it has been an escape valve and it has mm-hmm. been a pressure release valve, but has it done anything to keep the excesses of the administration in check? Uh, my opinion on this is that it never does, you know. I think you may be right. Um, I don't think it ever has. I don't know an example where it has. I think maybe at the most there could be two examples where it could have hurt somebody. I would say Gerald Ford, when SNL started making fun of him, he became a little more buffoonish than people had really seen him. Mm-hmm. And I think that hurt him against Carter, possibly. Mm-hmm. You know, And I think Sarah Palin, when Tina Fey did her, I think Gladwell does have some points there where I think people did view her a little more buffoonish than they had before. Because I was at that convention when Sarah Palin was there, and it was amazing. She was a rock star. She came out, and I was impressed. I was like, man, you don't even think of McCain. (laughs) This is who the candidate is, really. And she actually was the candidate, you know. And had she not stumbled, McCain might have been elected, you know. Um, That star power was was pretty bright. But I think think Gladwell's point was criticizing that portrayal for— Defanging her and I know, making I her disagree. seem. I disagree yeah. with him on that. I think he's more impotent or well, less because dangerous. I think yeah. he's ascribing a purpose to comedy that isn't there. That's his projection of what he thinks comedy should be. Mm-hmm. It's like, com- sorry, Gladwell, comedy's designed to make people laugh. All that extra stuff, good for you. You found that, but that's not what it's for. You know, um, people want it to be for that, but it really isn't. When it when it does that, good for it. You know, but nobody's in the writers' room going. All right, guys, we got to get this bill passed with this joke. <laughs> I don't know how this joke is going to get this bill passed. What is the bill? HB 417. Oh, yeah, I have a perfect joke for that to get it passed. Here's I, This joke actually is going to bring out 30,000 more people to the to the voting vote. Get out. Get the fuck out of here. No, I'm telling you. Wait till you hear this joke. No wait, one thinks like on that. On the other side, I got a joke that's going to suppress the right. vote like you wouldn't imagine. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's more like, here's my point of view on this, you know. Oh, really? Well, I have this point of view. Okay, well, what's funny about this? What's funny about that? And that's what you're discussing. Do you think art in general? I mean, okay, let's take comedy out of it since you Mm -hmm. do. You do uh, mostly comedic pieces, but you do, I mean, in Insecure and in Blackish and in all your TV shows. You think that changes politics? A check on politicians changes our opinion. I think it has no, nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. It's just a different thing. It lives in a different world. Um, I always say, you know, activists should engage in activism. And I always feel like that's why we have these words that are different. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Comedy exists to be comic. Starts you know? with the same first syllable. You got the act. But then yeah. you can veer into actor. Act one, or act two, act three. Yeah, there's a lot yeah. of ways to go with that. I believe they serve different functions. Occasionally you have an outlier that does something different, but I don't believe that usually is the purpose of it. And it's interesting, Mike, whenever that is the purpose, the audience can kind of feel it, and they kind of, I always feel like the audience is like, eh, that's a little preachy, yeah, or that's trying to do too much. You can always sense that, you know. It's, it's usually the unintended consequence of something more than anything else, I think. Larry Wilmore is the host of Black on yeah. the Air. And I want to thank you so much for joining Thanks, me Mike. on I this. hope I gave you some good stuff. I don't know what that voice that was, is. The Larry doing his <laughs> beloved character, Crazy Kevin. <laughs> Larry Wilmore, host of Black on the Air on the Ringer Podcast Network. Thank you, Larry. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Hey, um, I guess this goes in category one, but you did a segment once called The New York Times Explains Humor, and I think about that segment quite frequently. 
often when I'm listening to This American Life and other NPR shows. A Florida woman found a missing cat from Wisconsin which had wandered nearly 1,500 miles over two months. Or, and hear me out, sometimes cats look like other cats. comes from a few possible places. The first is the possibility that the cat's owners had simply mistaken one cat for another similar looking cat. But a quick check of the actual news story reveals the presence of a microchip in Nadia the Russian blue cat found in Naples, Florida, which would preclude a simple case of mistaken feline identity. Yet on a deeper level, the joke may be working based on the common trope of animals making their way home over thousands of miles. Great, great segment. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. The Dow rallied in late trading hours to, okay, I'm not going to bore you about advancers leading declines, but Captain Blunderbuss in the White House has been threatening a trade war. He's even slapping on tariffs. That's how tariffs are applied, by the way. You slap them on. Slapping on tariffs. And this is not going to be good. It's not going to be good for you. It's not going to be good for me. It's not going to be good for them. Them being the voters who voted for Trump. So you should think about this bad policy. It is a bad policy. We've said that about a lot of things Trump has done. But I think this is a really interesting bad policy. This might be a uniquely bad policy undertaken by the Trump administration, and it's unique in this way. I think this will actually be the first Trump policy that the voters who elected Trump wanted him to enact, that he did enact, that will have its intended effect, and that will wind up hurting those very voters. So those that's what makes it unique. Those are four planks. I'll say them again. The voters wanted this policy. He did enact the policy. The policy had the intended effect, and that winds up being bad for everyone. All right, let's go through the elements. One, a policy that voters wanted. Now, Trump voters wanted Trump, and they liked Trump. That doesn't mean they liked all his policies. Absent Trump, if you took Trump out of the picture, uh, his Russian policy would not be popular. If you took Trump out of the picture and maybe the sheen of Republicanism in general, if you took that out of the picture, many Trump voters, specifically the voted for Bernie in the primary, then voted for Trump in the general. Yeah, those guys, they would not like the tax cuts for the rich. I mean, they probably will tell a pollster they support it. They might actually tell themselves they support it, but they support it because it's associated with Trump. I don't think they support the policy per se. All right, then there are a bunch of policies that they did like that Trump has not been able to enact, the wall replacing Obamacare with something better. Then you have the policies that he has been able to enact, that they wanted him to enact, but it didn't really have its intended effect, like the travel ban. It did not work like Trump promised it would. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. Yeah, that didn't happen. He did make some pro-coal executive orders, and maybe it helped the coal industry a little bit. But remember, how they were supposed to work, how he sold them to his voters, we're bringing back coal. Coal is not coming back. That's not going to happen. Then we get to the tariffs. The tariffs were a promise 
And they were a promise that actually could wind up taking effect. And when they do take effect, I mean, all the experts say they will really cause a lot of pain for your average consumers, meaning Trump voters, in really noticeable ways, in ways that he won't be able to explain just by, you know, his crafty use of magic words. And what's the technique called? Lying, lying. Now, I am not a lit root for economic hardship on our enemies type. Those types are out there. Here's Michelle Goldberg speaking on the New York Times Argument podcast. I would love to see a stock market meltdown because most of the people who would suffer in that situation can take it. Whoa, I'm invested in the stock market. I mean, in a general way, I don't pick specific stocks. You might be too. Even if Michelle is right that there are a lot of people who wouldn't be hurt, who could weather it, the effects would spread to people who couldn't weather it people who we should have sympathy for. And let me throw this crazy idea out there. Maybe we should have sympathy for people who could handle a massive downturn in the stock market. I don't know. Just like see their shared humanity. Maybe even there are people we know. Maybe there are even people who voted against Trump and are funding his opponents. Anyway, I'm not one of those people who want a massive economic downturn. I'm not one of these people. As reflected in this op-ed in the New York Times today, why you should root for the Uber IPO to fail It's by Mahir A. Desai, who's a professor at Harvard. Well, Professor Desai, I guess you win. Well, Uber made its debut today as a public company. It's been a very bumpy start, though. The ride-hailing giant began trading publicly at $42 per share today. That's nearly 7% below its initial public offering price. The rocky road then continued in the initial moments of trading as Uber's shares slid into negative territory, at one point falling almost 9%. In the end, today, Uber closed down 7% at 41.57 a share. Although the idea of the anti-Uber guy winning doesn't exactly mean that Uber loses, let's put it this way, reviled Uber founder and former Wii tennis champion Travis Kalanick did make $4.9 billion off the IPO. I mean, if the IPO didn't go down, if it went up a little or stayed flat, it could have been like $5.3 billion. But the point is, there is no point to rooting for an IPO to fail. Yeah, I know Uber is a company that represents a lot of troubling economic trends, but it does seem to me that there are a lot more exact mechanisms of gauging public acceptance of a consumer services company used every day by millions of consumers than the roundabout path of rooting for the stock to underperform. If I'm being too oblique, let me say it clearly. Instead of rooting for Uber stock to fail, if you don't like Uber, don't use Uber. But it turns out we love using Uber. But what about the fact that Uber treats its drivers poorly? Regulate Uber. They got enough money. They could take following a couple rules. Advocate for stepping in and doing something about Uber rather than rooting for the stock to fail. It's like a kind of a capitalism fanfic. Now, I want to be clear. The arguments in that op-ed themselves, they were very much targeted to the way IPOs and wealth funds work. They were good arguments. I'm reacting more to how I saw this op-ed tweeted around with the sentiment, yeah, Uber sucks, down with Uber. Look, a popular product transforms an old sclerotic industry that should be improved. Rooting for its stock to crater will not get to the fundamental problems of workers and Uber. The connection between the stock and the company itself and what they do to the workers, it's a little bit tenuous. The connection, though, between Trump advocating for tariffs and getting tariffs and those tariffs hurting Trump voters, 
That seems really clear. And again, I don't root for economic pain, even pain to the misguided and perhaps even cruel people who voted for Trump. But I very much am interested and curious. I am looking forward to how this is going to play out as a natural experiment. Will the voters turn on him? Will they fault him? Will they actually notice that their prices have gone up? Well, maybe they won't use the things that will be affected by the tariffs. I mean, it's only going to affect things made of metal, fabric, plastic, also moldings. You have no idea how many things contain moldings. Look, I do think this is where presidential bluster loses its luster when things get concrete. Oh, also concrete. We are screwed in the concrete industry too. And that's it for today's show. In fact, that's it for this week's show. And what a week of shows it was. Five days of reflection and celebration. And now here's the time where I give thanks, proper thanks, to some of the people who have helped the most. Every day, I thank in the credits the people who make this show, Pierre and Daniel, TJ, and as you heard on Wednesday, the past producers who made the gist, Mary Wilson, Chris Brube, and Andrea Salenzi, who was and always will be the founding producer. Steve Lichtai and Joel Meyer held the role of guy who was nominally my boss. Both of those guys are great and they helped me so much along the way. I want to thank Gabe Roth and June Thomas. Every day I should thank them. I just don't. I think I told you this because more names in the credits means more jokes I have to make up. I also want to thank David Plotz, who was the editor who hired me, and Julia Turner, who supported me greatly, and Lowen Liu, who was also a great supporter, and Jared Holt, who I guess just inherited me and hasn't canceled me yet. The most important person in the founding of this enterprise was a man named Andy Bowers, who started Slate Podcasts. Andy and I worked for an NPR show called Day to Day. He actually quit NPR to work for Slate, and he said, Mike, come, come along. My first toe touch, or possibly foot fault, was with a show called Hang Up and Listen. It is a great show, remembers Elmo Beatty. And then Andy would say, you know, I like you doing this show, but I think we can do a daily show, a daily news show. I think it could work. And I kind of thought it could work too. I just didn't know if I wanted to be the one to do it. Then Plots and John Dickerson did a bunch of daily episodes around the government shutdown of 2013. And the proof was there. The audience loved it. And I realized then that I wanted to be the one to do it. And so I have done it every day or every weekday for five years, five years in one week, which brings me to the last trio of people to thank. And it goes without saying that Michelle and Milo and Emmett, Milo and Emmett, frequent guests on the show, Michelle, huge sounding board, very helpful. But that's not the trio I was thinking of. I should thank Mark Meadows, John Boehner, and Eric Cantor. Without your misguided brinksmanship and spineless caving, to the cynical and damaging shutdown, I might not be here today. You know, you guys really did turn out to be the job creators you always thought you were. Thank you, guys. Thank you all for listening. Wait, I do say that at the end usually, don't I? Okay, here goes. Um, Peru, da Peru, du Peru. And thank you for listening.